Hello and welcome to uh, another edition of the Football Podcast, where football meets politics. I'm one of your co-hosts, Guy Burton, and this is my uh, other co-host, Francesco Belcastro, joining me from London. Hello, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And so, do you know what we're talking about today? I know you're very excited about today's episode. You have no idea. So, obviously, for for people who who know, I'm actually based in Belgium, in Brussels. And so, I am very excited. I've been going to football here now for the last few years. But I don't know a hell of a lot about the history and the politics of of the game here. And so, we're very, very lucky to actually be joined by someone who can actually tell us you know provide all that kind of um, information and guidance um we're, we're joined by scott coin who is an independent freelance belgian football consultant and a regular contributor and producer to uh, the belgian football podcast which is the show that i first heard scott on and as it's basically the number one english language podcast de- dedicated to, to belgian football so hello scott welcome to the show hi guys how are you hope you're well uh, what an absolute pleasure it is to be here no, it's fantastic because I've been listening to you guys for a while now. You know, you do do, uh, you know, research and analysis, you know, f- on football more generally, both for players, agents, clubs and the media. And you're also a bit of a media commentator yourself. I mean, you've you've contributed to various uh, podcasts, you know, back in the UK and also YouTube channels. But you've also talked to uh, sort of, you know, much bigger uh, media like BBC Radio 5 Live about B- BBC Scotland and talk sport on football generally and Belgium more specifically. So. You know, I guess, ah, and I suppose we should also ask as well, you know, since we're talking about Belgian football, um, do you have a team? Well, regular listeners will know that I do have a I do have a soft spot for, for Mechelen, and to be more specific, uh, Cave Mechelen, uh, who are the larger of the two teams in, in uh, Mechelen. There are two Mechelen sides, I should highlight that. Uh, there are a side who play uh, a few divisions down called uh, Racing Mechelen. Um, they have an interesting rivalry. Um they don't get to play each other very often these days, obviously, because there's a there's a big gap in terms of divisions. But yeah, I have a I do have a soft spot for for Cave for for a number of reasons. I'm I'm very fond of Mechelen as a city, um, uh, like their supporters very much. There's a fantastic atmosphere at, the, at their stadium, and of course, they're a club. For those who know a little bit more about Belgian football history, will know that you know Cave Mechelen have have done some really interesting things in in, in the game. Um, so I I do have a a bit of an affinity with that 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 city and that 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 club as well. Yeah, okay, great. Well, listen, I mean, we let's talk about the podcast a bit. We'd like Francesco and I'd be really interested to know how it actually came about because you're a Scot, you're based in Glasgow. You know, there's Ben who's based in Brighton, and then there's Joris who's the Belgian amongst you, but he's based in Hamburg in Germany. So, how did the three of you sort of find each other? Why did you know? Why did this come about? How did it come about? <laughs> you have no idea how often we get asked this and how often I get to tell this story. Um, well, look, long story short, what actually happened was a little over three years ago, um, Ben, who you mentioned, uh, who founded uh, what, what some people like to affectionately call as, as the BFP, uh, Ben used to write for something called Total Football Analysis. Um, and Ben would write articles uh, covering some of the tactical aspects of, of top flight football in Belgium. Um, and Ben had had the idea, I think, of starting a podcast focused specifically on on Belgian football and Belgian football culture f- for a while. That grew out of of, of his writing, his tactical writing. Um, and what what actually happened was uh, way back at the beginning of COVID, um, when things changed for everybody, um, Ben decided that it was kind of the perfect 
time to really start something like that because everyone was going to have a lot more time in their hands. Um, so the, the first couple of episodes or so really are uh, pretty much Ben on his bedroom floor talking to himself, kind of processing um, some of the tactical developments and games that that, that particular weekend. Um, and I actually came across the BFP uh, by accident very, very early on. I think it was around about the time that the first episode went live. Um, and I sent Ben a little message saying, look, this is great, um, largely because I... I, I I've, I've all you know had a real affinity with Belgium for for a long time. Uh, always liked it. Love my football, obviously. Um, an English language podcast covering Belgian football, which nobody had been doing as well. Mm. So there was a niche there, and I thought, yeah, I, I want to really encourage this guy because this is something I would listen to. So I dropped him, you know, a friendly email, and he got back to me very quickly and said, um, "Would you be interested in coming on board?" And I thought, "Amen." on a one-off basis to talk mm. about my own interest in culture and football. But he was like, no, no, I, do, you, do you want to come on board and we'll, we'll see where this see where this goes? And I was delighted with that, actually, because I, I, <laughs> I, I've always, you know, uh, been a bit of a podcast lover. Ari Oris kind of found Ben at roughly the same time. Um, so the three of us came together with the intention of just seeing seeing where it was going to go, and it's really kind of exploded for us over the last three years because of that niche. Nobody else mm. had been covering Belgian football um, in an independent way with the level of analysis and kind of mm. coverage um, that we tried to give it in any way at all. So I think as people found us and the audience for it grew, um, clubs started to find us, and we started to make really good connections inside clubs uh, directly. Um, in Belgium as well, um, because Belgian football culture is very different to, to, to a lot of other countries. It's much more open. The media access is is, is generally greater and, and, and easier, uh, which is a very good thing as well. So it's exploded to such an extent that I, I kind of set up my own sort of independent freelance consultancy, um, as mm. Guy was saying, which has allowed me to um, do a little bit work for for agents and and do research of different kinds and you know we now find ourselves getting you know some quite high profile media requests uh, just mm. recently I, I I was on Sky Sports a couple of times uh, Philippe Clement um, ex Genk and, and Club Bruges head coach obviously is now at Rangers here in Scotland while I'm based and because I'm based in Scotland Sky Sky Sports and um, we're very keen to to, to whisk me. Um, a way to do some some live television when that happened recently as well. So, yeah, things have really grown very very quickly for us, um, and we're we're having a having having a great time at the moment, and seem to be providing something that that people are enjoying. So, a long way to continue. That's great. Um, now, most listeners like myself won't be really familiar with the with the history of the of the game in Belgium. Could you kind of summarize for us how, how football developed? Well. If you look at the history of football in Belgium, if, if you go way back to the very beginning, uh, which is usually a good place to start, um, we know that you know football was played as early as as the the early eighteen sixties in Belgium. So what you tend to find is uh, much like in. Uh, uh, virtually all countries, football really comes to Belgium in the first place um, through the British, um, through um, a number of English and um, a lot of Scottish coaches as well, because at this time, sort of in the mid-19th century, Scottish football is, uh, and people find it hard to believe this, Scottish football fans, well at least some of them know this, are really at the forefront of the game. Mm. Um, and a lot of Scottish and English coaches basically... Um, go out to Europe 
um, and work in schools and and, and colleges and, and and education establishments of different kinds and start to sort of embed football as a, as a relatively casual thing uh, recreationally. And we know in Belgium that you know that there are accounts of football being played by docks workers in in Antwerp in in the early 1860s. That's the kind of earliest record we have on a, on a very casual sense. And this will be because of some of those coaches who who are working in schools in Belgium who've come from England and Scotland and this is the same way that really football travels around the world more generally it's the same thing that happened in South America and most other European countries it's because coaches from these England and Scotland get an opportunity to, to go and work overseas and, and, and spread the game when football isn't really a thing up till this point um, there are some interesting accounts of football being played fairly widely across Brussels schools in the, the mid-1860s the mid as well. So by the time you get to about 1865, there are some documented accounts of it, of it being played in schools. So it's obviously starting to have an impact round, round about then. You don't get, this doesn't become kind of formalised uh, for, for a while yet, though. You get the, the first formal football club um, is formed in 1880, and that, that's Antwerp. Antwerp are the first professional football club formed in Belgium. Um, and they're very interesting because in Belgian football, uh, we have something which is very well known uh, called the, the matriculation system. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Belgian football culture is very proud of. And, and what it basically is, is each club is, is assigned a matriculation number that is unique to them. And generally speaking, the number relates to when you joined the Belgian FA. So Antwerp, being the oldest club in Belgium, formed in, in 1880, they, they're invited to join um, the Belgian FA when it's formed and football becomes more formal and recognised as a, as a sport in 1895 when the Belgian FA is formed. So Antwerp are actually playing for around 15 years as a football club before football becomes, uh, in its early stages, more, more structured uh, with the arrival of the FA in, in 1895. And because Antwerp are the very first football club, they rightly have a uh, matricule number one. And if you go and look at their logo, that's what the number one relates to on their logo. It's a, it's a direct reference to their matriculation number. Um, and it's something that Belgian football is, is, is very, very proud of, um, rightly so. Um, and interestingly, Belgian football also has a history of clubs getting into financial trouble, which is a long-term thing. That's not a recent thing. Clubs go out of business and clubs reform, and often they buy back their matriculation number, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, which some people see as kind of quite controversial, but that's that's another story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they, are, they are a player in the wider footballing sense as well. It's worth pointing that out because Belgium as a nation were one of the founding members of, of FIFA as well, way back in 1904. Um, a Belgian referee refereed the very first World Cup final as well. Um, not a lot of people know that. And they were also one of the founding members of UEFA way back in 1954. So little Belgium, as some people refer to them, really are quite significant you know, in, in a wider footballing context and, and um, yeah, are, are, are players in a way that, that people don't really understand, I don't think. Yeah, for observers coming to Belgian football for the first time, um, can you sort of summarise some of the key rivalries for us? How political these are? Is there also like a sort of linguistic difference between the uh, Flemish and Walloon part of the country? 
Yeah, well, this is this is a really interesting question, actually, and, and kind of gets to the heart of, of of Belgian culture a little bit more generally. Mm. So, if if we look at this, let's let's assume listeners don't know anything. So, Belgium's quite a, a complex country in terms of its makeup, really. Um, if you look at the the language breakdown, there are um, there are three main languages spoken in in, in Belgium. The, the the dominant language is is Dutch, Flemish. Um, and that accounts for about 59% of the population. 40% um, is French-speaking. Um, and then there is around 1% which German is the first language. And this is where it gets really interesting because the, the Dutch-speaking part of the country, uh, Flanders, uh, which geographically is, is, is kind of the largest part of the country, um, obviously, there are there are a wide number of teams that that, that play in Flanders. Uh, Dutch is the dominant language in predominantly the north of the country, and 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 the west of the country, sort of the northwest, um, the south of the country, and this is very generally um, is is French speaking. Um, that's forty percent, um, and then of course you have the Brussels capital region, which is interesting in its own right because you will find Dutch and French spoken, although French is is the slightly more dominant language in 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 the capital region. Um, so yeah, the four linguistic areas, you know, French, Dutch, the Brussels capital region, and and German speaking. The German speaking um, area of the country is very interesting. So that's the kind of far east corner, a small, very small area on the far east, very close to the German border. Um, some people refer to it as Open uh, Malmede, uh, or the East Cantons, um, as it's known. There is a, a top flight club based in that that region um, called Open, Cass Open, who play in the top flight in Belgian football, quite a small club. That They have a very interesting history. So 1% of the population in that area, German is their first language. And the reason for that is that area of Belgium was actually annexed by Belgium after the, the end of the First World War. That used to be German. Um, and after the end of the First World War, the, the Belgian government were very keen for reparations of various kinds and decided um, that they, they, wanted, they wanted that bit of land. And long story short, what actually happened was that area geographically, with that 1% who, who German is the first, first language, was annexed as, as part of Belgium uh, and was formalised in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, a little bit of controversy linked to this as well, because just after the treaty, and this is formalised, the Belgian government asked asked the residents in that area in a kind of informal referendum to kind of approve that, um, even though politically speaking it had already been signed off, which is a bit a little bit murky, hence the controversy. Politically, there's never been any trouble in that region. The the residents of that region, I think see themselves um, as German first, but also as Belgian. They, 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 they essentially accept what happened there. Yeah, given that Erpen is sort of the football team there, does it sort of have very much have a role that goes beyond just being you know, a football team and being sort of the representative of, of the German speakers in, in Belgium? I mean, does it have, is that is that a strong connection there? Not really in an explicit way because it's such a small percent of the, the, the population. What's interesting about Open actually in a wider sense is they are um they're actually Qatari owned these days, mm -hmm. um, Cass Open and have been for a number of years now. And 
that doesn't mean that millions are pumped into the club at all. They're actually running extremely modest means. There isn't a great deal of investment financially in the club, although they are Qatari-owned. They do have very wealthy owners who don't tend to invest that much in the club. Um, the club have, in recent years, had a number of, of German coaches, um, and that 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 reflects, obviously, the nature of the fact that German culture is quite quite dominant in, mm. in that small geographical area. In fact, their current coach, Florian Kofeld, um, is German, um, and you know has a lot of Bundesliga experience um, as well. So I, th I think they're, they, they are sensitive to that um, in terms of the club's relationship with the with the local community. So in, in that sense, it is very much recognised. Yeah. And if I could come back to you know you were talking about the split between I mean the big split between Flanders and and Valonia, you know, sort of the fr the French mm. and the French speaking. I mean, my my impression is that there's more clubs, at least certainly in the top flights, from Flanders than there is from Valonia, from the French speaking side. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the various political rivalries that happen between these clubs and sort of their sort of their their origins. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting as well. There's a number of rivalries. You know, if we if we break them down, really, you have. You have Anderlecht and and Standard Liège. There's there's a rivalry there. Some people refer to that as as the classical, which is mainly a mainstream media thing. Um, you also have um, Anderlecht's rivalry with Club Bruges. Some people refer to that. Well, Dutch speakers would call it the Klassiker, and that that that's the original classic, if you like. And this is really um, this is historical, and this relates to the fact that both Anderlecht and Club Bruges are historically the two most successful. Uh, sides in Belgium in terms of league title wins. Anderlecht obviously have won 34 titles and uh, Club Rouge have won 18. So that's where that rivalry comes about. Uh, but it's worth mentioning that Club Rouge don't really become a force in Belgian football until the 1970s, not something a lot of people realise. Mm. So that, that rivalry is relatively recent in, in, in football history terms. Mm. That's why I think Dutch speakers tend to see Anderlecht v Club as as the main derby, but French speakers tend to look at Anderlecht against Standard as being sort of the big, the big biggest mm -hmm. derby in Belgian football. And that's because that rivalry kind of precedes Anderlecht and, and Club. As I was saying, you know, Club only really come to prominence as a force in Belgian football in the 1970s when they, they win a number of titles and obviously reach a European Cup final. Up to the early 70s, Club Bruges aren't really a significant force in Belgian football. Standard are, are, are a bigger force. Hence why the the standard and and um, Anderlecht derby is, is is seen as 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 a fiercer rivalry to, to kind of French speakers. But you also have other rivalries there as well. You know there is the Battle of Flanders, which is uh, Ghent against Club Bruges. Um, that's that's quite a feisty affair uh, between you know two beautiful cities. Uh, those fan bases don't particularly like each other very much. Um, as well and does it go back to the origins of the clubs or no not really I, th I think it's really the prominence of of, of the two cities mm -hmm. as kind of political and administrative centers in, in in Flanders one is seen as kind of a cultural center and one is seen uh, as more of a, a a political center and I mm -hmm. think it's just the the historical nature of those two cities they're both very rich in history in all sorts of ways that I, I think the rivalry has perhaps been whipped up more by media rather than fans but there is, there is a rivalry there between the fans that, that has been relatively nasty in recent times as well we've seen some horrible skirmishes over the last couple of years in fact between fans of these two sides the, the water cannons have been out unfortunately as well and, and hence the media you know referring to it as the Battle of Flanders but there's other significant 
significant derbies as well. You know, uh, the the Walloon derby, which traditionally uh, is between Standard Liège and Charleroi, mm -hmm. um, the two dominant French-speaking sides in, in the top flight in Belgian football. And, and they're interesting as well. Standard Liège fans uh, have quite a left-wing identity, mm -hmm. generally. Charleroi fans, the perception is the opposite is the case. You know, Standard Liège fans would tell you that they have a, a slightly right-wing or centre-right identity. It's a matter of opinion whether that's actually the case or not. But their rivalry comes from the fact that they're the two major sides, really, in, in, in Wallonia. Mm. But also, socially and politically, Wallonia used to be the economic powerhouse of Belgium. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the coal industries and the steel industries, which were centred in Wallonia. So all of the economic power used to be in Wallonia. But, you know, come the, the late 50s, early 60s, after the Second World War, these industries obviously start to go into major decline. And what you see is a major economic shift mm. with the balance mm. moves from Wallonia, you know, with, with its French-speaking community, and it moves to, to Flanders and, and the Dutch-speaking community, where that is now very much the economic powerhouse of, of, of the country. Can I ask you, if this was reflected on the on the football pitch, did, did, did this also mean a switch of, of kind of a power switch towards uh, one region from the other? Yeah, I think in some respects it did. Standard Liège, obviously, are, are, are a club who, who have a rich history, particularly... Um, particularly the earlier part of the 20th century. You know, they, 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 they're a big player in Belgian football and are, are trying to get back to the top. They've been suffering from, you know, some significant financial problems for, for quite a while now. They, they have new owners in 777 um, who, who have mm. a, a multi-club network. But standard, standard are, are at the moment looking to get back to the top of the, the Belgian game because they, they have a real rich history, as I was saying, and, and, and have won a number of titles and, and cups. And um, up until recently, were considered uh, part of the G5, which which is the group of clubs that historically are the most six, five most successful uh, in 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 Belgium. They've fallen out of the G5, which has affected their own voting rights. Mm -hmm. Um, at pro league meetings as well, which is unfortunate for them, and that's more reflective of the fact that they've just kind of fall, fallen fallen away in terms of their their, their um, footballing power in, in in recent years, and are trying to build that back up. But yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that shift uh, from from the economic power going from Wallonia to, to Flanders has definitely impacted on the football field in the sense that what you do tend to see is the Flemish clubs have around that time tended to go into an ascendancy mm -hmm. and the balloon clubs have have declined somewhat i mean standard liege if you look at liege as an area liege has a lot of a lot of economic poverty mm -hmm. as does wallonia more generally you know there's very high rates of unemployment there and that that goes back to that economic decline and and it's never really recovered in any sense from it and there is a perception that wallonia is not a particularly attractive part of belgium a lot of belgians themselves say this uh, particularly people from Flanders. I, I've heard um, a number of Flemish people, you know, speaking quite unfavourably and unkindly about, about Wallonia for, for reasons that in, in some respects are kind of quite understandable. And there is there is a tension there, I think, politically and socially. Yeah. And, and that, that that's to do historically with, with tensions between, you know, the, the Dutch and the French, which go back hundreds and hundreds of years, of mm. course. I take issue with this because having been down to Bologna, it's a beautiful part of the country. It's it is, yeah. Can, can we ask, because you just, what you were just saying about this, you know, the, the linguistic differences and tensions, but how does this play out at the national level, right, with the Belgian football team? Oh. Because, you know, Belgium has 
has had been incredibly successful um, over, over in, in recent years. You know, in fact, you know, even though it's hasn't won the World Cup, it's come third a couple of times, most recently in 2018. It's also been the top ranked you know, team in the world. But how does this, uh, you know, sort of some of these underlying tensions, whether it's economic or linguistic, how have they played out in, 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 in the national team itself? Well, that's a really interesting question as well. I think it's worth highlighting here that up until the arrival of Roberto Martinez, who um, is, of course, now with Portugal, there was there was a tension in mainstream Belgian media around the national team that relates very much to the, the, the Dutch and French divide. And there was a feeling up until Roberto Martinez's arrival that a number of coaches did, did suffer from being criticised at times for maybe leaning too much towards, you know, Flemish-based players or French-based players um, and having been accused of, of, of certain related kind of club biases. What's interesting about Roberto is when he was chosen somewhat unexpectedly at the time, the interesting thing about that is that he um, obviously hadn't worked in Belgian football, so he had no relationship with any Flemish or, or, or Walloon-based clubs, doesn't speak French or, or Dutch, um, which you know, allowed him to be perceived as, as as neutral in a lot of respects and had a lot of advantages for him. So that that tension uh, was really taken out of of the media um, while he was around and and was was a very positive thing for the national side um, during that period. And I think the fact that they went on a very long winning streak um, during his time there allowed the country to kind of come together. Different aspects of the mainstream media kind of fell fell into the background. But yeah, preceding. Roberto's time, I, I think, you know, it, it definitely was was an issue. And you did see a number of, of coaches of the national team being accused of, of leaning towards picking too many Anderlecht-based players or too many players from standard because of their their own linguistic or, or footballing, you know, CVs or, or, or perceived allegiances. And that was something that plagues maybe too strong a word, but it, it certainly was a factor. And I think the Belgian FA have learned a lot from the Roberto Martinez experience experience in uh, being able to sort of neutralize that and and the benefits of, of that as a choice of having a a non-belgian if you like um coaching the national team and that is really one of the reasons i think they also went down the road of of appointing dominico tedesco as well he was a slight surprise appointment obviously uh, not a name that many had thrown in at the time or, or thought would be in with a chance of of that role but i think one of the reasons he was chosen was because he, he fitted that same neutral profile that that roberto did and i think that's something that the belgian fa are are, are probably going to look at trying to do again in the future at some point there was an expectation that they might they might return to having a Belgian coach this time but they haven't and that's because of that that experience. Now, we know that Belgium is an increasingly uh, diverse and multicultural society and in similar cases in, in other European countries you just kind of create debates around football and the first one that comes to mind is the sort of Germany, Ozil, Turkey triangle there. Has there been anything similar in, in Belgium? Yeah well 
Belgian Belgian football is really interesting in this respect because there is a there is a long standing connection between Belgian football culture and and African football, and this this actually goes back, you know, probably in footballing terms specifically to the the nineteen thirties. Actually, you can trace African footballers starting to to appear in Belgian football there. Um, and that's still the case. It's still the case today that a lot of African football talent will come to Belgium as their as their first port of call in, in European football, with a view to maybe you know going and playing in one of the the big five European leagues. The Belgian league at the moment, incidentally, is eighth in uh, UEFA's uh, league rankings, so it's still well within well within the top ten. But yeah, there's a very close historical relationship between Belgian football, African football, and for a while now the the Middle East. Mm. Um, as well, um, mm. o- often that's that's where players from these countries will, will will come as their first port of call, as I was saying. But I think the multicultural aspect of Belgian society is also significant here. We, when you look at the the breakdown of of the nationalities, and I and I I went away and had a closer look at the actual numbers. So the ethnic breakdown works a little bit like this: just over seventy five percent are Belgian, Belgian by birth. Just over 4% is Italian. Mm. Nearly 4% is Moroccan, which is which is a quite significant figure. And there, there, there are and have been over the years a lot of Moroccan footballers. I mean, just at the moment, actually, in the subject of Morocco, uh, Genk have a, have a fantastic uh, young attacking midfielder, Bilal Elkanous, um, a real rising Moroccan starlet. His family uh, came came to Belgium a number of years ago, um, and he's a really good example of a young player who who is developing his game um, in, in in Belgium and will undoubtedly go on to, to great things in, in in another country. Two and a half percent French, two percent Turkish, two percent Dutch, and then the other just over ten percent are other nationalities, and those other nationalities will be uh, African mainly um different different communities there and i think the belgian national team have benefited from that multiculturalism there's no doubt about that i mean just off the top of my head if you think of somebody like um enzo shifo mm-hmm. uh, yep, wonderful yep. you know world class footballer enzo shifo's story is really interesting he he's born in belgium he's born in la louvière in uh, wallonia uh, but he he comes to belgium with his family um his parents are italian they're they're actually from sicily um, back to the, the Italian connection again, the, the second biggest ethnic grouping. They they come to, to Belgium in the early 1960s. Um, Enzo's father... Miners. Yep, that's right. Miners, that's right, yep. Um, work, worked as a miner in, in Wallonia. Mm-hmm. Back to yep. back to the, um, the economic powerhouse again. Enzo grows up in Belgium, um, gets a chance uh, to play football in, in, in Belgium, takes off and chooses to play for the national team. Now, Enzo Schifo could conceivably have played for Italy another time in another place. So so Belgium benefited from, you know, that that multiculturalism. And he's a really good example, I, I think, of, of of benefiting from that. Possibly the most prominent example, he obviously goes on to, to play for Belgium at, you know, European Championships and World Cups, nearly 90 caps for the national team. And and I, I think it's something that, you know, Belgium, I think in the future, will, will look to benefit from um, as well, and adds to what we were saying way back at the beginning about how how complex Belgium's makeup is um, as as a country. Enzo Schifo is kind of a, an example of the past, and obviously there are sort of other you know other individuals today who also have that kind of you know uh, ethnic and multicultural background. Um, are there any that you should that you'd want to sort of flag up at this particular point 
because obviously there's been other ones in the past. Um, you know, I think of sort of Vincent Company, for example, or Marwan Fellaini. Yeah, I mean they're they're all they're all great examples mm. of much like the Shifos families who who come to Belgium um, from elsewhere, make Belgium their home, and and really forge unbelievable careers. Um, as as a result of of obviously what what Belgium's able to provide combined with mm. their with their own talent, but I think that that goes goes to the heart of something about Belgian football culture in relation to the the, the academy system as well. Mm-hmm. Belgium has a Belgian football understands its place within the wider food chain um, of, of 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 football. Um, it knows that the operating model, regardless of who you are now, is to develop your own talent through through the academies, um, and then sell on your talent at the right moment in order to start that process again. Yeah, I mean these are these are families and individuals who've benefited hugely from. Um, you know, the Belgian football and academy system and some of the Belgian football academies, I would argue, are amongst some of the best in Europe, mm-hmm. some of the most underrated ones. Genk's Academy is is incredible, mm-hmm. as is Anderlecht, which remains very famous. Nearpeed is is very well known, doesn't need any introduction from me. The list of talents that have come out of there is pretty extraordinary. Um, but yeah, if you are a young footballer, um, then Belgium is a country that is absolutely worth uh, coming to. And what we see now, interestingly, and I know this through talking to agents uh, myself who, who are based in England, that um, they understand that young English players based at some of the, the, the major clubs academies there who are unlikely to make the breakthrough with the, the senior Chelsea side or the senior Arsenal side, for example, the Everton's and Liverpool's of this world, um, clubs that have good academies in their own right, um, their agents are now advising them um, to, to to go to Europe, yeah. um, not necessarily Belgium, although Belgium's one of the main countries, and play the football. And we see that now. So Standard Leisure is a great example. Um, you know, um, Isaac Price, um, you know, there are three or four young uh, English players who, uh, when their contracts ended recently at major English football academies, signed long-term deals with Standard Liège. But if we can think more about the the relationship between football and politics, um, or football and society, I mean, so wh- where do you see what what should we be looking for when it comes to to Belgium? Um, you know, in the next couple of years. Well, I, I think what I was saying earlier about the. Um, the coming together of the national team through the neutrality of the appointment of certain mm-hmm. coaches is, is significant here because we're talking earlier about how diverse a culture Belgium actually is and how it's it's really a very complex country uh, politically and socially. And in many respects, when you look at it geopolitically, uh, Belgium shouldn't really work. Uh, lots of people have said that before. It just it, it just shouldn't because of the sort of many disparate elements. And you know, if you look at other countries that have disparate elements similar to that in a way, um, things haven't worked. So you have to ask yourself what what is it about um, the Belgian psyche, if you like, and Belgian culture that that allows those those elements to come together and and work and form a whole that actually punches well above its weight in in a, in a number of things, not just football, but I think politics and art and history you know it, it goes beyond football um and, and i think there's something about the 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 belgian psyche I, I think when you consider that belgium is sandwiched between france on one side 
and the Netherlands and the other two nations that are both overtly quite confident and always have mm-hmm. been and do tend to shout a lot about what they're good at. Um, Belgian people are um, very modest, uh, the, the, the majority of them, and, and don't tend to shout about their successes and things that they probably should. Um, I mean, bringing it back to football just for a second, I mean, recently Kevin De Bruyne got himself into a little bit of trouble. Um, obviously, Belgium had a, had a miserable World Cup um, and when they exited at the group stage, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, after that, in an interview, did say, "Well, w- what do you expect? We are we are only little Belgium." Um, and he did take a little bit of flack from that, unfairly, I think. I think it was taken out of context, his quote. But yeah, I think there's there is, of course, politically as well, um, worth pointing out a separate Flemish uh, separatist movement which is a, a largely quite a right-wing movement that, that is in favour of, obviously, of Flanders separating from the rest of Belgium. This is not something that's supported across um, the, the majority of the Belgian population. Is there, is there a football team that is closely associated with the movement or, or where the movement has got more support, you would say? Not, not really. Um, not, the, the clubs, for the most part, themselves have deliberately distanced themselves mm-hmm. from, the, from that movement because I think they understand how how sensitive that is. Um, and I think there is an understanding, as I was saying, that it's a, although it has been growing in recent years, um, it, it's not something that is anywhere close to, to being near a majority yet. So it is very much a minority thing. And I think it gets an attention that it probably doesn't deserve because it, it, it makes an easy an easy news story um, often. But the clubs have been very careful to distance themselves um, from that. So I wouldn't say there's any one particular club, mm-hmm. say in Flanders, who have a, a, a link in any sense really at all to, to that movement. That doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't supporters mm-hmm. connected yeah. to some of those clubs who do feel an affinity with that but I think that's a separate thing and, yeah. and perhaps a, a separate thing specifically in relation to maybe ultras groups as well mm. but it's not something that's caused any any significant issues in, in, in Belgian football and culture really thankfully Mm. That's great. This has been really fascinating and I, we have to we have to invite I'm conscious of time but we have to uh, invite yeah. you back because Guy didn't get you to ask about his favourite football club I oh. didn't get you to ask about the connection between uh, Belgium and Japan which is uh, another fascinating one. Well, we'll have you back yeah, next time. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to come back any time. Wouldn't, wouldn't turn down a chance to talk about Belgian football culture. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Scott, for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. No, oh, thank you. What do we okay. need to remind to our listeners, Guy? That uh, if, if you liked what you heard, maybe you could share it or review it or subscribe. Um, Maybe if you didn't like it, you could probably write to us and tell us what you'd rather have us work on. And I think it's impossible after this episode, guy. It's entirely impossible. Of course, absolutely. But you know, and and we're obviously you know we can be contacted you know through all various sorts of uh, you know social media. Obviously, we have a Twitter account or X account. We have a Facebook account. We have a Blue Sky account. Um, Instagram. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that pretty much just leaves us to talk about what we're going to do next week, right? Yeah. So next week is going to be a Qatar World Cup special one year on with Ella Knight from Amnesty International. 